This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Praise the Lord. Well, um, as mentioned earlier, I am maybe excited is not the the right word, but I'm really keen to get into this message here this morning. So we're going to move into it uh, fairly promptly. And so let's start to have a look uh, at this subject and guarding against an enemy beachhead. Uh, just ignore the next line. That's from last week's template, um, How to Know You're Living by Faith. Uh, that was from last week's sermon. So just ignore that. It's it's a zero consequence. How to guard against an enemy beachhead. And a, a beachhead um, kind of comes back to military terms where uh, naval um, forces would uh, look upon a, a um, an enemy, look upon their boundaries of their, their islands or their, their coastline, and they would look for a place that they could beach, uh, preferably undetected, and get their soldiers off the ship and onto the land. And so uh, the, the imagery is very, very simple in this regard. This is a place that the enemy is able to have an access to our lives that gives him a foothold, as Ephesians says, uh, it's the same kind of thing, in order to access our lives and cause uh, greater disturbance and, and greater uh, problems for us. So this is a really important issue because if the believer cultivates in his own life, his or her own life, any known sin, um, then he is giving the enemy an opportunity to establish a beach head or, or a foothold uh, in which he can manipulate that, that believer's life or, or accomplish his purposes, uh, Satan's purposes in that believer's life. So Satan will use that beachhead as an opportunity to invade other areas of, of a believer's life. And this is a really important point for us. Um, we have listed there Ephesians 4 verse 27, which simply says, and do not give the devil an opportunity uh, in the New American. So we'll go through the, the surrounding passage uh, for that text in just a moment. J.B. Phillips translates that phrase there, do not give the devil a foothold. He says, don't give the devil that sort of foothold. And it carries an idea of a, of a foothold or an opportunity or a chance uh, to, that the enemy can have to operate and to function within a person's life. So in the language of warfare, of course, we would say don't give the enemy a beachhead. Um, and so with that, let's, uh, let's pray and then we will go into the text which is found today in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Father, we thank you this morning and we praise you. Uh, Lord, we ask you just to open our hearts and minds to your word. Let our hearts and minds be discerning concerning truth. And Lord, where we may be in the process of giving the enemy a beachhead or, or have given the enemy a beachhead, 
help us, Father, to quickly repent and turn from that, that we might, uh, Lord, turn our hearts and minds toward, uh, toward you, uh, Lord God, and, and that you would defend us, that you would protect us from the enemy's workings. So we praise you and we thank you in the mighty name of Christ our Messiah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 is the text that we'll read from. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Be not angry and yet, uh, sorry, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labour, performing with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Fantastic passage. It continues. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So let's consider this this morning, the, the idea of um, uh, giving the enemy a beachhead, and we'll consider some of the sins that Paul speaks of, and there are more. You You can... Uh, look, I'm really sorry about the formatting of this. It, it's really annoying me this morning, the formatting of the um, uh, the screen here, because there are some things you're missing. They're kind of decorative, but they help with the visual aspect. Uh, but anyway, staying on focus. Um, there are sins that give Satan a beachhead, and any sins can do that. Um, but especially when there are sins that are harboured in our lives and we may excuse in our lives because, we, you know, we excuse them under the grounds that, oh, this is just a, a personality fault. It runs in the whole family, um, you know, and we, we use excuses like that or, um, you know, I was mistreated and so I behaved this way. And so we develop a, um, uh, you know, an excuse, an excusing behaviour for our sin. So let's try and understand. Um, the sins, or some sins, that give Satan a beachhead, and maybe in the way in in the process of that, we will uh, see why these sins um, provide a beachhead to the enemy. So, the first one we want to look at is lying, and we just read in the text. Uh, Ephesians 4.25, once again, I've got all the verses listed here at the beginning, uh, all the verses associated with uh, this particular slide. Um, so they're all there. 
But Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbour. For we are members of one another. Now, Satan is a liar, and that should not surprise us. You know, um, lying opens opportunities for him to work in our lives because that's his nature. And so when we lie, we're playing right into his hands uh, as one who desires to see deceit and this corruption of the human heart. He, he desires to see that. So when you believe the truth, the Holy Spirit is able to work in your life and the truth becomes that liberation from the enemy's strongholds, from his, his working in your life. And this is why I said I was excited about this subject because it ties into much preaching that I've done on the, on the mind and the mind being that, um, that stronghold whereby we guard against the enemy's workings. Um, so when you believe a lie, the, dev- the devil is able to take that, that, that forms a beachhead or we might say a fortress in the mind, a strong point from which he can work in your life to overthrow your faith and confidence in the Lord to uh, bring you into de- into a debilitating sin. Uh, John eight forty four listed there says you are of your father the devil, and you want uh, and you want to do the desires of your of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Where whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So this is the nature of the enemy, that he he is a liar and he's the father of lies. So Paul gives us a really good reason for avoiding this deceit in the text that we read. Um, He says, for we are members one of another. Now, in order to uh, counter this uh, work, of the enemy to counter this nature of the enemy that he is a liar and the father of lies. We should heed Paul's counsel in Philippians 4, 8 listed there in the start of the the slide. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So, you know, one of the reasons Paul says that we are to avoid deceit is because we are members of one another. So there is an aspect of caring for each other uh, that is within the within the text and uh, within, you know, what Paul says. So what he's saying there is that we belong to each other. God's, God's truth builds up the body of Christ where Satan seeks to tear down the body of Christ. And one way to do that is through lies. And um, uh, if there is deceit within my life, it's going to affect the body uh, around me, the body of Christ. It'll affect my family. It'll affect my church. And that's the same for you, wherever you are. If there's deceit within your life, it's going to affect not only you, but your family, your church, your workplace, all or everyone who's connected around you. Now. God is the God of truth. His word is truth, John 17, uh, and his spirit is truth, 1 John 5 verse 7. So 
if you and I are harboring a lie, if we're harboring deceit in our lives, it is going to be impossible to maintain fellowship with the Father. There's something of that fellowship is going to be broken down. The fabric of it is going to be damaged. Um, if you think about Ananias and, and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they had an opportunity to be a great blessing to the church, and and uh, uh, but in the process of sharing this blessing with the church, they decided to lie about it. And, um, and so as a result, God judged them very severely. You can go back to Acts chapter 5 and read that for yourself. Now, keep in mind that their, their sin was not withholding of money. They were entirely entitled. Peter makes it very clear. They were entitled to do with it as they pleased, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. So their sin was trying to make people think that they were spiritual when, in fact, they were, they were being hypocrites and they were being carnal, looking for praise in this lifetime, looking for praise to themselves rather than letting the glory go to God. So um, Matthew 25, 41 says that, the, that hell is prepared, prepared for the devil and his angels, and we'll get to Revelation um, because Revelation says uh, in Revelation 21, verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's Revelation 21, verse 8. And then similarly, 22, verse 5 kind of sharpens the point on this and says that uh, everyone who loves and practices lying uh, is also, it kind of focuses, focuses it in there. So in other words, you know, um, if you and I think about it, we, we may lie many times um, and uh, we may lie, you know, sim simply. And for, but there is a person that Revelation speaks of who is someone who loves and practices lying. So their life, um, you know, if you think about even the, the great, um, historical records, uh, Abraham, he lied. Um, but it wasn't the habit of his life. Um, it's the person who makes lying the love of his life. It's something that he, he rests upon as a natural default position to fall back to lying. Their life is characterized by deceit. Such a person, we could say that such behavior is so like Satan that the person who practices that behavior will end up with him in hell. And that is a, uh, that's a thought that should, should scare you and I, scare us into righteousness. But let's keep looking at, um, at sins that can create a beachhead. Um, the second one, and this is one, uh, that is terribly common amongst believers, and that is the sin of anger. Anger is uh, a, a very serious problem in our community at large, and uh, you can 
you can see any number of um, uh, angry videos online uh, on on YouTube um, to do with um, driving, uh, dash cam footage and these kinds of things dealing with, with driving and people um, uh, just doing crazy things uh, out on on the road. So the enemy is, is filled with wrath. Uh, he is a wrathful person. Ephesians 4 verse 26 so says, Be angry, be angry, and do not sin. So we, we can't just do the, uh, the modern uh, word of faith thing and just take part of a verse. Imagine if we could take that part of that verse, just like people do take parts of verses and they, they say, well, you know, Scripture says, and then they quote a, a tiny portion of a text to justify themselves. And uh, imagine if we just took that, be angry, and that's it. But it says be angry, and then it gives boundaries to it, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there's a further boundary. Not only do not sin, don't even let your anger go to bed with you. Don't, don't go to bed seething on that issue. Get it dealt with is the, is the exhortation of Ephesians 4 verse 26. Satan is angry. Revelation 12 verse 12, woe to the earth and verse 17. So um, you can look at the whole text there. Uh, woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And the dragon Satan was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keeps the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, this, this fact, if lying was in the nature of, the, of Satan, and if anger is demonstrated in the in the um, uh, behaviour of the enemy, this fact would suggest that if you and I have uncontrolled anger, that that would naturally give a beachhead to the enemy because it plays into his hands. And just as lying and murder go together, um, so do anger and murder. Matthew five. Uh, 21 and 22, um, at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus links anger and murder. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and uh, whoever commits murder shall be liable to court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, just anger, everyone who is angry with his brother, shall be guilty before the court, and whoever say, uh, shall say to his brother, Raka, this is an Aramaic word um, meaning empty-headed. Um, and so there are many, many terms for this uh, that we use in today's day and age. He shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. Now. <laughs> We could debate lightheartedness and, and things like this, you know. The intention is a malicious intent. And my um, the, the intention that Jesus is getting to is 
when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and you can take time to go over the whole message, he is dealing with the heart. And so he is saying that when your heart is filled with anger, it's not just murder that is that is that could send you to hell. It is even a hateful heart that can say these hateful things about your brother or sister or about your fellow man. So Jesus, uh, you know, there, there is a righteous anger, and this was displayed by Jesus himself. Um, uh, you know, God expresses anger at sin in Psalm, 90, uh, Psalm 7, um, and Jesus revealed his righteous anger when he drove the merchants out of the temple, um, Matthew 21, and also when he condemned the hypocritical Pharisees. But it's not enough to just love good. Believers must hate evil as well. And I think this is something that we don't focus on enough. We have to have a hatred towards sin. I once had a brother share with me that he really struggled with pornography and um, and his key to victory over that pornography was when he made a startling confession. He was praying about it and praying about it and seeking God on it. And then he made a startling confession as God gave him a revelation of his own heart because he, he was crying out, God, I hate this. I hate this sin. And then all of a sudden it hit him. I love this sin so much, Lord. And then the repentance started because he was able to identify that he loved the actual sin that he must hate. And so you and I must hate what is evil. Psalm 97 verse 10, listed up there, um, hate evil, you who love the Lord. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We never hear that one quoted. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. This is, this is why it is righteous for Christians to, uh, to campaign against abortion. Romans 12 verse 9, in case we just think that it's Old Testament, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And abhor is one of those words that kind of sounds like what it means, you know. So it is difficult for us as sinful humans to cultivate and exercise a truly righteous anger, you know, because our nature has been corrupted. And if you were, before you became a Christian, if you were, uh, you know, living large, uh, sinfully in life, it's difficult to come back from that and to um, uh, just to then mature automatically into the Christian life. Our nature has been corrupted. It has a way of polluting our emotions and um, uh, so that they sometimes do more harm than good. We're easily offended and so we get angry at someone. And then as we walk away, we sometimes are convicted and we think, why did I get so angry about such a small thing? What what was going on with that? And um, you know, we we get a sense and an understanding that we behaved irresponsibly. Even Aristotle recognised this all those years ago. He said anyone can become angry. That is easy, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, this is not easy. 
Because sinful anger always leads to more sin. This is something we should really clarify. We should really have that embedded very strongly in our um, in our hearts. That sinful anger will lead to more and more sin. So usually when we're angry, we say things which later we feel regret for or we feel sorry over, um, and we often make decisions that turn out hurtful to other people. And the enemy knows this, so he desires to cultivate a sinful anger in our lives. And, you know, we don't have time to go into it, but, but sinful anger is rooted in pride. It says that I deserve more than what I'm currently receiving. I, I deserve better um, uh, better treatment than I'm receiving right now. And so um, our, our pride wells up within us and then we start to react uh, unrighteously as a result of that. So um, bear that in mind. Now, we are kind of skimming through these this morning. Let's keep moving. We want to go on to another one mentioned in our text in Ephesians, and that is stealing. And once again, all our texts are taken from the New American Standard. Um, Satan is a thief. So you you will probably have noticed by now that these uh, characteristics, these sinful tendencies, are in line with the character of the enemy. So Satan is a thief. Now, in our text in Ephesians 4 verse 28, Paul said, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. John 10 verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Uh, Matthew 8, 28 to 34 and Mark 5 verses 1 through 10 uh, speak of the, uh, give us two uh, examples of the demoniacs of the country of the uh, Gerasenes. Another translation says the Gadarenes. Um, powerful, these were powerful examples of how Satan steals even from his servants. So, you know, he's definitely got a desire to steal um, from the servants of Christ. He wants to rob us of any effectiveness. But uh, within his uh, purview and, uh, and his realm of influence, those who serve him, he will steal the most from. And Satan robbed those men of their sanity, their liberty, their homes, their families, their joy. Um, they were rendered ineffective in the work life because of the demonic manifestations happening. Their reputations were shot. Their health was shot. Um, they cut themselves with stones, so their behavior was was uh, self-detrimental. Um, he would have robbed them of their lives and their souls had he been, you know, had, had the opportunity and they hadn't been set free uh, by Jesus. So when you think about this, if you and I behave in that kind of way, if we're, if we're stealing, we are behaving in a manner that is akin to the behaviour of Satan himself. 
So employees who borrow from their employers, and say borrow in uh, quote marks, we'll use that term loosely, they allow the enemy to get a foothold. Soon a person who may feel that it's okay to steal from their employer starts to steal from the government. They think that it's okay to, uh, to you know, steal from the government, maybe do a false tax claim, uh, these kinds of things, um, cook the books a little bit in their home business uh, so that they don't have to pay tax. And, you know, that kind of person could easily steal uh, many thousands of dollars. So what could have gone from stealing one very small thing from the workplace ends up being the theft um, of many thousands of dollars in some cases. Because that's the nature. The, the nature is getting a hold of us. Luke 16, verse 10, he who is, who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And the verb tense, I've made the note there um, on the uh, on the slide, that the verb tense shows that it's in the in the present tense. This is a condition of that person's life. Because of their faithfulness, they are presently faithful in big things. Because of their unrighteousness in small things, they are presently unrighteous also in big things. So there's no need to list the various ways in which we can steal and try to excuse it. We all know what these could be in our hearts and you know, I may have triggered a couple of things that uh, that could remind you of ways to be faithful, um, whether it's time or, or we could steal from uh, from God by not caring for those that he's put around us, um, holding back uh, money and assistance from others as well. James 5 uh, indicates is also a wrong behaviour. But Paul reasons in our text in Ephesians 4 that we should work, and his reason for this is to stop stealing, start working, and from that work, lay aside something to give to those who have need. So what Paul is doing here, he's showing the cure to a, a thief's heart. The cure to a thief's heart is stop stealing, and start working with your own hands and then also save something that you can give to others who have genuine need. Um, our relationship with others is an important aspect of the Christian life and it's not only a fear of God's judgment, um, but remember verse 25 in Ephesians 4, we learn that we are members one of another. So we're linked together, beloved, and we need to remember that um, as we consider this because it's not enough just not to steal. You might think, oh, stealing, that's not an issue for me. Are you laying aside to bless others? That's an important point. Let's move on this morning. Okay. Well, here's one that is, I believe, very important in our day and age. Filthy speech. Now, there, there's some debate regarding 
um, speech, um, some forms of language, some words, should we say this or shouldn't we say that? And look, I, I believe we have to be careful on mandating the authorised um, filtered list of acceptable words that Christians can use because some of those words change throughout history. And at one point in history, a word may be um, uh, extremely uh, rude um, and, and offensive. Um, and uh, at another point in history, it might not be at all. And so some would say, oh, that's, that shows the declining standards. But there are words used in, in uh, medieval England and that, that would not be seen as acceptable in the church today. There are even words used today um, in some countries that aren't acceptable as in other countries. And um, uh, so, you know, we, we might say in Australia, oh, damn it, and people kind of cringe at that, Christians, they, they cringe at that. Um, but there are areas in America where where if you say that, it is highly unacceptable. And so to some degree, filthy speech in that regard, in terms of the actual degree of vulgarity or unacceptableness, um, unacceptability uh, of certain words is a little bit cultural. But filthy speech is not really cultural. Um, Verse 29 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, here again is this classic problem that we Christians have. We focus on the word word. Let no, you know, let no unwholesome word, and we focus on one word. He's not talking about one word here because one word doesn't edify. If I say to you, oh, I'm going to edify you by saying the word peace, you know, that's not what Paul is talking about. That's just insane. And so, therefore, just saying a single word is not necessarily um, unwholesome. Uh, even even a uh, disgusting word may be wholesome in the right context. You might say, how? Well, let's say, for example, you were giving an account to the police and you had to give an account of the angry words that were spoken before a situation occurred. Well, these might be words that you have to repeat back to them that give a thorough account of the situation and are completely correct for you to do. So that's not what he's saying. The context of what Paul is saying, given that it is a word good for edification, he's talking about here the entirety of language. He's talking about um, speaking the, the whole phrases of what we say, whole intentions of, of what we say. So Paul repeats this warning in chapter 5, verse 4, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. So the, 
the obscure, you know, the an old rule of um, biblical interpretation is let the obscure be interpreted in light of that which is not obscure. Well, chapter 5, verse 4 is much clearer on what Paul is talking about when he talks about an unwholesome word. Filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting. So he's not forbidding even a wholly healthy humour. Um, the ability to laugh actually is a good thing, and I think Christians could probably even do with a laugh right now, to be honest. But Paul is condemning that low, dirty, perverted kind of humour, that kind of humour that that picks on uh, characteristics of people that are not things they can change. Um, so, for example, if I as a white man was was picking on people because of the colour of their skin, making jokes about uh, the Chinese because of uh, certain features they may have or whatever it is, that would be low coarse jesting because it picks on things that are beyond a person's uh, individual control and it brings them into the, um, uh, into the foreground. Also, I could pick lewd things and uh, and talk about that as well. So Paul is condemning coarse and filthy humour, coarse and filthy language uh, that may be used, not just individual words because that has no context to it. He's, he's, he's talking about the context of the whole conversation. So God wants our speech to be edifying. He wants the things that we say to edify other people. And so as the Lord said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when impure speech, when coarse humour is streaming from our hearts, that's because that's what we've been filling into our hearts. And, um, uh, you know, we've been festering or fermenting a, um, uh, a um, corrupted heart, a pornographic heart maybe. And so our, our language becomes um, uh, graphic in ways that are not acceptable. Um, if Satan can get us thinking about sin, uh, we will be then talking about sin and this will become a pathway to committing sin. And in some cases that thinking and talking about sin is in itself sin. Um, so. This, this is a so when we begin to lower the standards of our heart and our life, and we begin accepting um, certain forms of behavior and the input of um, you know certain um, forms of behavior into our lives, you know, through media and various different things, this is going to become a pathway to lowering our Christian standard and. Uh, behaving that way, thinking that way, speaking that way, and then committing ourselves to behaving that way. So filthy speech. Let's move on. We have two more to cover here. Now, th this is a really important one because, you know, an unforgiving spirit. It's, it is not tough to be bitter. That's not a sign of strength. 
Humility is a powerful attribute. Holding on to bitterness and grudges is a terrible thing. And it is not a redeeming factor at all to be able to hold on to uh, grudges. And in our text in Ephesians 4, 30 to 32, listen to what Paul said to them. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Uh, I love that passage. And it's a, a startling passage that gives us some really good ways to live life. The believer who harbours bitterness and malice in their heart is giving a powerful beachhead for Satan to work from. This is one of the most effective beachheads that the enemy can have in your life. And it really begins to render your life as ineffective from the get-go. You will meet people and you can see their life has been destroyed. It's written all over them. And when you begin talking to them, they will say things like, you know, in school I was bullied for three years. And I'm not trying to belittle bullying. It's a terrible thing. But then 50 years, 60 years later, the effect of that encounter at school is still regulating their lives. And, and that is a, a terrible way to live, that they've been trapped in that experience of the past and they've come forward all these years to this day and age and they're still trapped back there because they, they're trapped in unforgiveness, they're trapped in bitterness, they're trapped in malice, the, the thoughts of what they would have done if they could have done and all these kinds of things. Um, this hinders the spirit from working in our lives and, um, and it robs us of the power we need to, defect, uh, to detect and defeat the devil, not defect, uh, to detect and defeat the devil. So, you know, the, the old nature delights in breeding this kind of poison uh, in us Satan loves to see you and I poisoned this way because it is so effective. We get hurt in one church, so we carry that hurt to another church and we, we then become the hurters and we, we become on guard and we're looking for every single little thing that somebody says. We're, we're not interested in the motives of their hearts. All we're doing is hearing a word. And uh, so we run with that word and we say, oh, look at these people. Look how unforgiving they are, or look how nasty they are, look how bullying they are, etc., etc. And um, so the the remedy for this is forgiveness. Now, do not confuse forgiveness with a lack of discernment. Um, I'm not saying that. Being wronged in a church through error and deceit is not the same as being wronged by people um, 
whether that's sinners or people in the church um, who, who may have, for whatever wrong reason, wronged us. Jesus gives us steps to follow in Matthew 18, listed there in the slide, and um, uh, he talks about how to remedy a, a fault that occurs between two people. Um, he cautions us in Matthew 5 to remedy situations, be reconciled as quickly as possible with those that we have a falling out with. The longer you harbour unforgiveness, the more territory Satan will be able to gain in your life. And I think there's probably not an area of life that is more prone to exploitation from the enemy than the areas of unforgiveness and the area of the mind, of holding on to wrong thoughts. Uh, Both those areas are very prone to strong and powerful and and influencing uh, um, um, effect of the enemy. So, you know, in essence, um, unforgiveness destroys lives and there are many um, wives who have uh, influenced their marriages in wrong ways because of a terrible thing that was committed against them in childhood. I'm not saying that's okay and it has to be gone, but I am saying that as Christians we must learn to forgive even the vilest of offenders. That does not mean that that person should not suffer the consequences of the law. They should, and I am a big supporter of that uh, in the cases especially of rapists and pedophiles. Uh, I think these people should be taken to the the maximum degrees of legal punishment, not the minimums uh, that happens in our pathetically soft Western democracies. Um, where criminals get away with uh, with murder and rape, literally. So, but holding on to unforgiveness is the beachhead that the enemy will use to really mar your life. Um, so, yeah, that's you know you you can't force someone to forgive you, right? So let's say you're the offender and you go to a person, Matthew 18 um, is being put in place and and God convicts you, you go to that person and you want to seek to seek their forgiveness because you realize as a Christian that not only is your action wrong, but now you're a stumbling block to that person because they're snared up in bitterness against you. And so you go to them to remedy that and, um, uh, but they don't forgive you. There's, there's nothing you can do about that. You can't make that person forgive you. You can go away and grieve for them. That's what you can do. You can go away and pray for them. That's what you can do. So, um, But you can't force someone to be forgiving. Uh, that's, that's just the case. You can send them to a sermon like this maybe and, and that might help them. So let's move on to the last point here this morning and um, we'll we'll be on this slide for a little while. So um, the last point, 
and that is slander. That should should say slander. So um, I am just going to really quickly. Oh, it does say slander on my computer. I don't know why it doesn't there. Oh, no, there. So let me just quickly, because that's going to annoy. It'll annoy me. And I don't want to be a stumbling block to you. Um, so let's get right back to it. Okay, slander, and it should say point number six, but let's not worry about that. Um, we make mistakes. I just make more than most. So, um, but you will be forgiving because you're Christians. Isn't that right? So Ephesians 4 verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, there's obviously quite a few different aspects uh, of beachheads that we could talk about within that passage. You see I've listed a number of verses in this section. Um, but slander and gossip are terrible things. And we have to be careful. We've got to guard on this because we can get involved and I've done it, you've done it, you know I've done it because you've heard me do it, I know you've done it because I've heard you do it. We have to be careful about slander, um, especially in the public forum. In this day and age, with the ability for any one of us to be an internet troll, we can get on the web and we can say, um, you know, brother so-and-so is now a heretic because he said X. And we can make a statement, a blanket statement about somebody that can discredit them and ruin their reputation and character in the public domain. Now, that is not to say... There is, there is not a place for discernment and for the exposing of people's errors. Paul did that. Jude did that. Um, uh, John did that. This, that is a valid um, behaviour for Christian ministers and for Christians, mature Christians to do. So 1 Timothy 3.11 and Titus 2.3 Paul commands that the deacons, wives, and the older women in the church are not to be malicious gossips. And speaking of um, uh, Titus 2, I forgot to um, play that this week, so we'll play it next week. Um, the, the, the word malicious gossips here is really interesting because it's the word diabolos, um, and obviously uh, for those who are game players, uh, you know, that Diablo, um, or if you speak um, Spanish, uh, is a word translated to mean the devil. So devilish gossips. And um, so the meaning is a slanderer or an accuser. And so the point that Paul is making here is that when believers share in gossip and slander, they are performing Satan's work. So 
you know, th this is a really important point because this is a powerful beachhead because not only does this beachhead affect us, but it affects the hearer. So not only may I be caught in a, in a sin, but now I'm affecting somebody else and I may be bringing them into a sin that they do not have uh, grace to handle in, in that circumstance. So Exodus 20 verse 16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. That's God's commandment straight out of the Ten Commandments. Among six things the Lord hates is a false witness who utters lies in Proverbs 6 verse 19. Um, and Proverbs 25 likens a club uh, and a sword and an arrow to bearing false witness against one's neighbour. So, you know, think about that, a club, a sword and an arrow, they, they all are able to hurt or kill um, at various ranges. So, um, you know, slander, malicious slander is not just a face-to-face -face thing. In, in this is why the internet can be so dangerous. Slander can be in written form and in a matter of seconds it can go from, uh, you know, from Botanic Ridge to around the world. Um, just in a, a matter of keystrokes. In fact, it is virtually uh, instantaneous. So, but whatever the range is, it can cause great damage to people's lives, no matter what the range is. It doesn't matter if it's face-to-face -face or long distance. So many great and godly men of Scripture and of history have suffered as a result of malicious um, slander, and I, I guess within the Christian world, this is one of the things that we should expect, and yet it probably is one of the most painful experiences. And the reason for this is because we desire to live a righteous life and live a holy life, and then to have somebody saying that that we are being, you know, fill in the blank, whatever they want to slander us regarding. Um, that is why slander can be such a hurtful thing to the victim of it. And so, you know, we have Joseph and David and Jeremiah and Paul and even the Lord Jesus. These people were all slandered. Uh, many great and godly teachers throughout history have been slandered um, by their enemies. Um, and so it is a painful experience. Now, it's especially painful when that experience um, comes at the hands of those who call themselves brothers and sisters. It's one thing for us to be slandered by the world. You know, oh, these, I mean, the world is on a campaign at the moment, the Western world, to, to slam Christians and liken every Christian as being a right-wing fundamentalist neo-Nazi. Um, you know, it's just insane. It's total insanity. Uh, to think that way, but this is what they do, and they want to box us in. And so as a result of that, Christians who are uh, easily offended by such slander, they they react by trying to engage with the world and show the world, no, we're not that way. And so they swing way toward the left uh, side of, of um, socialist behaviour. So, and this is because... Um, the the effect is painful to people. And some people, you know, they really have trouble handling that effect. 
upon themselves. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's pretty clear. So when you think about it this way, Satan must rejoice to see Christians slander each other publicly. It's one thing to see a Christian maligned by a newspaper or or um, or the project. Um, and if you watch that show, you, you need to get informed because that is misinformation at every turn. Completely misinforming. Now, but it's one thing to be maligned by that kind of organisation that clearly has an agenda against individual freedoms and, and uh, religious rights and things like that. But it's another thing when, when Christians are slandering each other in a public warfare. I'm not saying to not be discerning, and I'm not saying to not expose false teachers. They need to be exposed, right, because that protects the flock. <coughs> but sometimes... Uh, Christians, because they're so concerned about a position they hold to, which isn't even a primary position, get involved in slanderous warfares with each other over things like the rapture and, and stuff like that, things which are not primary in their importance. They are as secondary in the, you know, at the very best, they're secondary. So um, uh, Galatians 6 verse 1, brethren, listed up there, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So here's the proper approach. <coughs> when you see someone who's fallen into some area of sin or, or heresy of some sort, try and restore them in love. The first step is not necessarily to go public and expose them and say, you know, Brother so-and-so, we demand you repent from this heresy. You're going to back them into a corner, and when you back people into a corner, it's very hard for them to come out of that without fighting their way out and maintaining some sense of dignity about it. But if you go to this person individually and you approach them humbly, or as Paul says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. Remember how the mighty have fallen. You and I are not far from falling ourselves. Without humility, we will all fall. That's for sure. 1 Peter 4 verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. See, if I'm genuinely loving my brothers and then I see one who is starting to struggle, because I have genuinely been loving that brother in a biblical sense, and then when I go to him and say and bring some correction to him, he is going to be in a place where he knows that love is genuine concern for his life and he'll be able to receive uh, that love um, uh, from me as a result. So, you know, this is, this is why such texts are important, Gal Galatians 6 and 1 Peter 4, uh, Proverbs 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So this doesn't mean that love ignores sin. That's not the case. 
uh, or that love condones sin or turns a blind eye to sin. You know, um, uh, the, the Chinese have a saying, um, you know, one eye open, the other eye closed. You know, one eye open, the other eye closed. So, in other words, um, he turns a blind eye would be the, the English equivalent. It's not the case of that, that we're just turning a blind eye to sin. But it means that because we love that brother or sister, we go to them about their sin, firstly, in private, to them, between you and them. We don't have to lord it. We don't have to parade it. We go to them, first of all. And um, uh, this is why I believe for, for ministers who are um, have international impact, that the people around them are the ones that should go to them first of all. There's no point you getting on the internet and decrying someone instantly because of something they said and calling them a heretic and, and in error before those who are close to them go to them. Um, you know, but anyway, that's another discussion. Um, so it, what this means is that love for our brethren helps to keep us from exposing the sins of their life to the world before we talk to them about the sins of their life. That's, that's what that means. It's that simple. It, you know, this keeps us from growing proud uh, of our own lives and remaining humble. It helps us to remain humble as we approach them about the struggles that they're going through. Um, and, you know, in other words, the old saying, don't hang your dirty washing out um, in public. You know, it's also... I think it's also very wise to not believe everything that people say about other Christians in public before it's been proven. Um, I'm just saying there is a lot of garbage made up about Christians and sometimes we play into the enemy's hands when we take a hold of that and we, we plaster it, and I've been guilty of doing that. So... Um, it is very hurtful to people when that is done. Second Corinthians 13, verse 1, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There you go. Deuteronomy 17 and 19 will also uh, confirm that. So Satan, Revelation 12, verse 10, he is the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren. So he has to rejoice. He's got to be rejoicing when, when Christians start behaving like him. Just let that sink in for a moment because, and I just want to put that caveat out there again, I'm not talking about discernment and exposing of false teachers. People who have been in error and have been corrected, let's say the, the Benny Hins of the world and the Kenneth Copelands of the world and the Joyce Myers of the world who have been proven to hold on to a heretical teaching and not repent of it, they should be openly condemned. Then move on. I, I don't have the... You know, the website domain name Joyce Meyer is condemned forever.com. You know, I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in getting my Christian life across the line. 
I'm interested in being able to be faithful unto the Lord and fight the fight, see it through to the end. That's what I'm interested in. And so any sin that we harbour in our own lives, any known sin, and the, 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 the issue of harbouring sin anyway is going to mean that we know about it, right? Any harbouring of sin is a beachhead for the enemy. So if you, um, if you harbour anger, uh, one way to deflect uh, from people seeing that anger is to try and steer that, that anger into a righteous cause, for example. It's been, you know, this can even include like people who, who maybe they um, get some family inheritance and in that family inheritance is something that's been handed down and it's occultic. Get rid of it. Don't keep it in the house because, oh, but this was granddad's. Man, my dad was, was a mason. Even my, my unsaved mum wanted to get rid of his Masonic stuff after he died, you know. Um, he, he got out of it, um, didn't have his tongue cut out. Um, he, he got out of it, that kind of thing. So I never knew about it. Um, all, all I knew is that the local masons um, were nicknamed the Goat Riders, and I don't know why. So, um, But no Christian should hang on to those kinds of things. Those kinds of things have a place and it's not in a Christian home for memories. Um, and so the Ephesian Christians, uh, you can look in Acts chapter 18, uh, they, they burn their books about or their, their writings about magic incantations and, and different things. They, at that point, took a great step forward in defeating Satan and the hold that he had over them in their occultic practices. So, you know, never look on any sin as a small thing. Sin is not a little thing. Sin is a big thing. And nothing is little if Satan can use it to gain a beachhead in your life, whether it is lying, whether it is anger, whether it is stealing, whether it is filthy speech whether it is an unforgiving spirit or whether it is slander, uh, the sixth point, which on your slide says the fifth point, if you read Latin. So, so that's, uh, that's that this morning. That's, that's what I have for you. Uh, this, uh, I have often ministered on the issues of the mind and this issue of guarding against an enemy beachhead ties into that because although this is focused very much on sinful tendencies, one area that the enemy does often gain a beachhead is when we hold on to a wrong thought. And um, I will talk about that, no doubt, in the near future as well. So um, that is one of the subjects that, that I... Um, really enjoy to minister on and and um, uh, I'm not a psychologist and um, I'm not saying it from that aspect but just saying it from a practical living viewpoint that the truth of God's word is what sets us free 
from uh, that work of the enemy. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au. Thank you.